0: It was April 4th, 2019. The then Deputy Special Representative for Political Affairs at UNSMIL, which is the UN mission to Libya, was busy. Stephanie Williams was planning the most significant peace-building event Libya would have witnessed since its descent into civil war in 2014
1: the UN Secretary General, my boss, flown to Libya as we're on the brink of hosting 150 Libyans in a very lovely oasis town called
2: Radames. The purpose was to gather Libyan elected officials, civil society representatives, and power players to agree a framework for elections. But across the country, some disruptors had hatched a different plan this major armed actor, who you know well, Jason, or
1: know of him well, uh, General Khalifa Haftar. I am
0: fortunate to not have the pleasure of knowing him personally well.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I've met him on numerous occasions.
0: The career of the rogue General Khalifa Haftar is archetypical for a neo-populist grifter. He was a Qadhafi loyalist in the 1970s. Then he defected to the U.S. as the Libyans were losing, and trained as a CIA asset, after which he acquired American citizenship. Then Haftar returned to Libya during the Arab Spring. And in 2014, he launched a fake coup, leading to a military insurgency, and he came to dominate most of Libya's oil-producing regions.
1: This gentleman decided to attack Tripoli. And this is the UN-recognized government that he's attacking.
2: As Stephanie learned more about the attack, she realized something. Certain members of the UN Security Council, countries like France and Russia, had secretly been helping Haftar. All the while on paper, they had agreed to recognize the government in Tripoli, the same government that the rogue general was looking to overthrow. The Security Council just fell apart.
0: Hoftar's personal biography and his surprise attack on Tripoli, with the connivance of Putin, Trump, the Emiratis, is really a perfect example of the type of outcomes that emerge in the absence of global leadership. I'm Jason Pack.
2: And I'm Alex Hall-Hall, and this is Disorder. This is a podcast where we examine a pressing global issue like climate change, tax havens, or neopopulism. We discuss how these issues have come to be part and parcel of our era of global disorder and where we finish by proposing solutions to try to restore effective global governance that ultimately could help us find a semblance of order.
0: This week, we're going to look at the current absence of global leadership and how the global enduring disorder keeps post-conflict states like Libya in a semi-permanent state of chaos. And then we're going to look at another category of states like Iran, who majorly try to disorder their neighbors. We'll discuss both of these countries' positions in the world, asking whether they are victims of the global enduring disorder around them, or active players trying to disrupt their neighbors. (music) Greetings, order freaks. This week, we'll be talking with Ali Ansari, the founding director of the Institute for Iranian Studies at St. Andrews University. But first, we'll be hearing from my good friend, Stephanie Williams, who throughout her career as a diplomat has worked not only for the U.S., but for the U.N., where she rose to the level of being special advisor to the secretary general on Libya.
2: We began our interview with Stephanie by asking her to explain why she thought a stable and prosperous Libya is essential for an ordered world. Libya at
1: peace with itself, with its borders under control, will first and foremost not pose a threat to its own citizenry, but also this free flow of weapons and drugs and fuel and particularly the horrible trade in in human beings that happens across Libya, it is a European problem. And I think that they should be very worried about the Russian presence on the ground. I think they should be worried about Turkish ambitions in Northern Africa. I mean, you know, both countries would like to use Libya as a launching pad. Then last and not least is the whole struggle or the saga between the democracies and the autocracies and that we are, the whole region is slipping back into autocracy with this surveillance estate, uh, civil society really being uh, clamped down on. So I, I do think that the democracies need to step up for the Libyan people who have been very clear that they want elections.
2: And there's really no other solution for Libya. Wow. Well, I mean, that's a very compelling set of reasons. And I just have this sense, and I'm interested in your views on this, that domestic voters in the UK and in the US, and perhaps in other parts of democracies as well, are simply overwhelmed with the number of conflicts that have been going on in the last 20 years. They look at Afghanistan, they look at Iraq, they don't feel those turned out too well. And looking at Libya, the problems are so multidimensional. We have an economic problems due to COVID and the war in Ukraine. And so for domestic voters, it's like, it's enough. We simply can't afford to be vesting our efforts so much in this country as well. How does, an American president or a British prime minister or a French president persuade their electorate, this is worth a really massive effort. How do they make that case? Well, I don't think it's actually
1: that big of a lift. The United States is already giving Libya $46 million a year in economic assistance. There's some cleanup that has to happen in some of these world capitals with regard to looking the other way with money flows. I do think the city in London uh, probably sees a lot of Libyan money sloshing through. (laughs) So I think we need to be quite smart in going after these guys, going after their money, freezing it, and not allowing them to travel. Isolation. They want to visit their money. They want to go to Europe. They want to live the high life. They have all of their properties, are enough resources being put, you know, behind this effort to really say, hey, we are now going to use these sticks. And I know
2: sanctions work in Libya. But don't the local actors have the same advantage in adverted commas that at some stage, even if we can impose a solution, at some stage, we will think good, problem solved, we'll move on and they'll crawl out of the woodwork again
1: look, these guys are going to play the long game. They had Velcro attached to their seats. You know, they just don't want to leave. And when I went back to Libya in December of 2021, and I made the rounds talking about the need to really resuscitate the electoral track, get the country to the elections, one of the, well, he was like the number two in the parliament at the time, told me very nicely, well, I don't understand why you keep talking about elections, Stephanie don't you know that in Lebanon during the civil war and the lead up to the Taif agreement, the parliament stayed in power for 20 years. So why are you pushing us? Why are you taking away our jobs, you silly UN envoy? And I, I thought he was joking and I started laughing, but he wasn't joking because it was really an actual example for him of an ability to stay in power. And that's what they want But it's not only the parliament or the – it's all of the actors. It's the armed group actors. It's Mr. Haftar. Mr. Haftar is a status quo actor in that he will never allow elections to take place that if he is a candidate, he can't win.
0: What was it like meeting with diplomats in your role, either as an American or UN diplomat yourself? How do they function differently than other diplomatic envoys?
1: In a country like Libya, uh, it's not the foreign ministry. In most cases, that leads, uh, has, quote, the Libya file. It's an intelligence game. You know, you're talking to people, but you know that the people who are really making the decisions are sitting elsewhere in that capital. And, And this is obviously very convenient also, for instance, for the Libyan actors who are really happy if they can go have, you know, their secret meetings and, Particularly if that involves political tourism, you know, going to Istanbul or Abu Dhabi or here or there or Rome, you know, which does make it very hard for the UN who needs to engage in a transparent manner to really talk to the real decision makers in these capitals.
0: I feel like a feature of the global enduring disorder is what I term shadow policy. And shadow policy has always existed But it's the preference for accomplishing something not through an official institution like the foreign ministry, but through your son-in-law or through an intelligence channel. And we've always had shadow policy, and I'm not saying that this is different, but today's information tools and technologies and the ability to communicate and give power to the guy that you really trust that you're texting on signal is very different than how His Majesty's government in the late 19th century could operate. Do you know what I mean? It's very difficult to have a shadow policy when Lord X had to write a letter and then it was vetted and it went all the way to the sublime port and they opened the letter. Is this like a feature of technological change to some extent, this increased power that shadow policy and spymasters have?
1: I saw it in Libya most prominently. And one way that it was very damaging was that you would have engagement with armed actors. So Mr. Haftar, as as the great counterterrorism partner, all kinds of engagement with him. All of that comes at the expense of institution building. We should send left to the United Nations. Oh, you know, you guys go do the institution building. We're just going to continue to have our privileged relationships with the very people who aren't interested in building institutions because institutions are going to threaten their ability. I mean, it's so I constantly had to have this conversation. You understand that you are now undermining what should be a common international agenda to help this country build the necessary institutions and rule of law.
2: How do we engage those mid-sized countries that don't have malign intentions, but sit out these conflicts and yet can become an indirect conduit for facilitating disorder? Yeah, I
1: think it's actually quite tough. The United States needs to bring to bear its enormous weight in the world, its enormous potential to do good, you know, along with partners like the UK and France, not to underestimate that because people are actually, I think, looking for, if you're looking at what are the different examples you can follow in the world, I would still argue that the democratic model, the more inclusive model is, is one that most most citizens of the world want to follow. It is only when things are entirely thrust into chaos that you have, for instance, just get an authoritarian in there and he'll straighten everything out. I think those are false choices that we impose on ourselves by not really investing the weight of our our power and influence. A lot of global politics since the Ukraine war has been framed
0: democracy versus autocracy. What if we frame the world a little differently, orderers and disorderers? How would you reframe this ordering and disordering look, you know, whereby medium powers like Iran might be major disorderers, and then tiny, tiny Netherlands
1: could play a huge role as an orderer? The UAE it can be a major disruptor, but they are also very close counterterrorism partners for the united states and combating the iranian influence in the gulf but are we investing the full weight of our relationship you know with the uae when sometimes they do things that are very disruptive how are we ordering these relationships and what are we bringing to bear democracy is not a panacea and it can yield chaos and it can yield unintended consequences but I think that we need to continue that inexorable march in that direction because the alternative means that we are basically, I think, relegating large populations of the earth to living in states where people act with impunity and there's no accountability for basic respect for human rights and the dignity of
2: people. So Stephanie summed up for us the problem with the international community's approach to Libya. After the break, we're going to hear how a lack of global leadership has enabled Iran to become a massive disorderer.
0: As we heard from Stephanie, Libya represents in microcosm pretty much all that's FUBAR in the world now the inability of the major and Western allies to work together, and a struggle for dominance
2: on a global level. I think that's right. I think the point that I found most depressing from Stephanie's remarks about Libya was how she was explaining how even countries that are allies and supposedly share the same values internationally, like France and Italy, were backing different sides on the ground in Libya. So that incoherence... At the international global level, played into the Libya conflict at the local level and made it worse. And as the conflict in Libya got more messy on the ground, it exported more contagion outside the country. And that provided the perfect scenario for countries like Turkey or the United Arab Emirates to come into that conflict and mess it up even further. And that's the essence of the global enduring disorder.
0: For sure. And that really highlights this separate variable of ordering and disordering. In the ordering league tables, you could imagine some countries punching far above their weight. And in the disordering league tables, country punching above their weight. And that doesn't mean how important they are to the autocratic team or to the democratic team. Because so in the democratic team, the U.S. is the top player But we're not necessarily punching above our weight as orderers. The Scandinavians, the Canadians, they're very, very good at certain kind of ordering and coordination. And in the autocratic league tables, obviously the Russians and the Chinese are at the top. But maybe the Iranians are major disorderers. So there's also this other dimension, which is not necessarily connected to geopolitical weight. It concerns whether states choose to actively disorder or to actively order.
2: Ha, I like your framework. I'm going to visualize it as one of those classic quadrant graphs. In the top right, you've got big powers that are big orderers. And then you have smaller powers who nevertheless are good orderers. And then in the bottom left, you have big powers that are big disorderers. And then in the middle left, you have countries that are mid-sized powers, but are major disorderers. I think there's a classic kind of pie chart or quadrant graph that you could use to describe this. And we need to plot them out. I actually want a visual of this, Jason. And anyone
0: who can visualize this while driving, while listening to this podcast, (laughs) kudos on you. (laughs) Speaking of it being in the bottom left-hand corner of major disorderers that are maybe only medium or small powers, we got the Iranians. Many administrations have put it in the same position in the quadrant that Alex had and have made it a top foreign policy focus.
2: Exactly. And the best example of that was when the US under President Obama initiated the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, sometimes known as the Iran deal. That was Obama's way of trying to deal with the problem of Iran as a disruptor by getting the Europeans, the Chinese, and even the Russians on board for a deal to monitor their nuclear program and in exchange for Iran playing ball, sanctions would be lifted on them, and they would be helped to get access to various markets. I was actually serving in Washington when the JCPOA was being negotiated, and there was a very delicate moment when Obama was trying to get it through Congress, and sadly he never got that congressional approval. But British foreign secretaries and ministers were lobbying endlessly, trying to urged Congress to say this was a real win-win, a truly global attempt to constrain Iran and control its nuclear program. And I have to say it was so devastating when Trump came into power and one of the first things he did was nix the deal and withdraw from it and the deal collapsed. And fast forward to today, in Iran is unconstrained. It's a meddler in so many different countries, and its nuclear program is back developing again.
0: In order to understand why the Iranians are always busy choosing disorder over order, we spoke to Professor Ali Ansari. He's the author of The Politics of Nationalism in Modern Iran, and he helped create the Institute for Iranian Studies at St. Andrews University. I was joined in this interview by our roving correspondent and regular contributor to the show, David patrick who we met a few weeks ago in our cyberspace episode. David's first book, Nuclear Iran, The Birth of an Atomic State, had a lot of research about Iran's role in global affairs. He began by asking Ali about the country's position as a disorderer.
3: In many ways, Iran is the great disruptor. The central thesis of the Islamic revolution in 1979 was that the global order was unjust and needed to be reordered, and reordered in Iran's image, it has to be said, not one that everyone adheres to. So, even though Iran is seeking to
0: live in a disordered world, aren't they also trying to create a regional order where there is their allies stretching from Lebanon all the way through potentially to northern Pakistan, or is that really just a fiction?
3: No, I think ultimately that would be their aim. But I think the view is is that before they can get there, they have to do a bit of disruption and to basically disorder the current order before you can establish the order that you seek to put in place. But the thing is, is while, well, you know, I think you're quite right to say they would quite like to have a chain of allies sending around the Middle East, but why stop at the Middle East, by the way, Jason? I mean, I think, you know, for the Iranians, their ambitions are global, right? So I mean, what they're looking at is something much, much bigger than that. And this is but one step towards the reordering of the world, and I mean, you see this a lot in the uh, the writings of and the statements of many of the sort of the more harder ideologues of the Islamic Revolution. It's very clear in that, but it's the sort of stuff that is certainly out there. Ali,
4: in what degree do you think we can say that Iran is part of this axis of powers? Even you know, informally, from Russia to China to perhaps North Korea, they're very different states, of course, but that, that seek to discredit what we might now call the Western rules based international system.
3: I think Iran is an absolute central player in this. I always thought Iran was sort of like a junior member of the sort of anti-Western axis of resistance. I mean, certainly when you include Russia or maybe even China in that. But the more I've listened to Putin, I have to say, the more I think that Putin's been supping at Ayatollah Khamenei's table. There are some strange, I have to say, synergies in terms of some of the rhetoric coming out of Putin. So it's an interesting argument really to discuss to what extent really Iran is a far more central player in this uh, axis. The Arab Spring
0: in 2011, of course, caught the Western powers with their pants down, unprepared and without either coherent American or European leadership. There was not a ready-made response for how to restore order in that region. So have you seen over the course of these last four decades, the Iranians have successfully Caught the international community napping, injecting their disorder and their grievance throughout the world.
3: I think, in part, you're right, Jason, but partly it's because the West hasn't been paying attention. You know, it's like saying, we had no idea that Iran was up to this sort of thing. And I say, well, why did you have no idea? It's because you weren't looking. I mean, you weren't paying attention. And then, of course, Iran's attempt at disorder and global disorder was given a major boost by America's global war on terror. Okay. So, this, in a sense, you know, the Iranians had this disruptive element in their ideology. But not until the Americans knocked out the Taliban to the east and Saddam Hussein to the west of Iran, did the Iranians suddenly realize that opportunity beckoned. They could suddenly now realize some of the things they want to do. What 9-11 does and the American reaction to 9-11 is it basically reinforces and accelerates a particular trend, in a sense, in Iran. Could have gone both ways, actually. It could have gone either way, sort of 2002, 2003. But ultimately, hardliners in Iran won over, really. And so this actually presents us with a massive opportunity.
0: Hasn't the threat from Iran also been something which, in the last 10 years, new forms of coordination have been invented to deal with it? Like, If we think of the JCPOA, there was some novel coordination that the Obama administration came up with to connect not only continental European powers who maybe had more economic ties with Iran to America and Britain, who traditionally were more outside of dealing with the Islamic Republic, to then containing Israel and the Gulf allies who wanted to maybe scupper the deal. Was there like coherent collective action to deal with the Iranian threat that then collapsed as a result of Trump? Or no, there was never really a moment of kind of novel institutional collective action to deal with the Iranian threat.
3: I think there was... And I think you're right on a sort of a theoretical level, if I may put it that way. But I think the approach to the JCPA was inherently flawed. This is why. Obama says something quite very interesting recently. He said, in 2009, I made a mistake. He said, I was told in 2009 that the Iranians don't want us to interfere or to support their protest movements. And basically, I backed off. And I remember it very well. And it was a very curious moment. And people basically in Iran those in sort of oppositional, you know, dissident movement, basically came to the conclusion that, yet again, the West was putting nuclear security above human security. Okay, it's an important point. And the point here is that what they did was a focus on nuclear issues at the expense of an understanding of domestic politics in Iran, basically ensured that the nuclear issue, however which way they were going to try and solve it, was always going to be slightly held hostage to the fact that domestically things were not going to go the way that the Europeans and the Americans wanted. They hadn't thought through a holistic approach to Iran. That was the problem. And they sort of assumed that a nuclear agreement would basically moderate Iran, bring Iran in, that Iran would be very keen on Western investment, so on and so forth. Actually, many of the people in Iran who were looking at this weren't interested in Western investment at all. What they saw was an ability to break out of sanctions to enable them to do the very sort of disrupting that they'd been doing beforehand. And that is what ultimately undermined the JCPOA because regional powers then came out and said, hang on a minute, you've just given them lots of money to create more mayhem in Syria and Lebanon and Yemen and all these other places. I mean, this was a slight disconnect and it was a disconnect that in my view was the consequence of people in Washington, London, Paris, Berlin, not wanting to see the inconvenient truths that there is an ideological drive in Iran which was not interested in making peace and chumming up with the West. This was the problem.
4: It's kind of more than that, though, isn't it, though, Ali? And this comes back to what you taught me so many years ago, which is that in many regards, a key raison d'etre of the Islamic Republic is to resist the
3: West, right? Yeah. You take that away from it. Exactly. It's not like you can run the country properly. Yeah. So basically, you know, Obama has a very famous phrase to quote Martin Luther King the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Frankly, you know, I think the Iranians and us, it's all massive misunderstanding, basically. My response to that was yes, I'm sure Ayatollah Khamenei does think the arc of history is long and it bends towards justice. But the destination he has in mind is not the same as yours. And I think you have to realize that, that where he wants to be is not where you want to be. Khamenei is convinced that the United States and the Western global order is in decline. And it was in decline and it requires Russia, Iran, you know, ever else you want to bring into this axis. You just need to push a little bit more and the whole rotten edifice will collapse. We talk about it, and you read to which,
4: you know, from 2001 onwards, it's not just that we helped create S. We enabled this. We took out Saddam, We yeah. took out the Taliban. And when you say Ayatollah Khamenei thinks we're in decline,
0: look at Afghanistan. Look at the Kurds. Look at everything. So He hasn't taken it just out of nowhere. Well, he's he? not wrong. Because even seen from the perspective of just 1979 or the 80s, American overall GDP and relative manufacturing, of course, has been in decline since the Tronc Glorieuse. And our relative supremacy militarily is being eviscerated every year as there are more nuclear powers and drones and other technologies level the playing field. So maybe he's not wrong. And the justice that he thinks that the arc of history is bending towards is one where players like... Iran and Venezuela will have more to say in terms of how the world is structured. And I would say that that is the essence of the global enduring disorder. It's this leveling where we have a cacophony of voices who are empowered to say a million contradictory
3: things. You know, would Putin Mm -hmm. have invaded Ukraine without that extraordinary debacle with the withdrawal from Afghanistan? And I remember saying to colleagues here, I said, if you think Iran is going to sign up to the JCPOA, you know, go back into it last year it was. I spent some Americans. I said, if you think Iran is going to come back into the JCPA after having watched your disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, think again. Basically, they're looking at this and they're saying, oh my God, America is a mess. We can just sit here and extract more concessions down the line. Now, where I would push back, I suppose, a little bit is that actually what's happened with the invasion of Ukraine is that it's pushed the West into a greater focus on order, if I can put it that way, that they have regrouped and suddenly the Russians and the Iranians and others are thinking, possibly we've overestimated how rotten this is, but actually there is still some juice left you know, in this. For
0: sure. The very robustness of the popular response shocked a lot of observers because they were not realizing that people didn't so much care about the Donbass or Crimea, but they cared about millions of white Christian refugees that... They were going to see on their TVs and a major land war in Europe.
3: I think that's absolutely right. I think that basically both the Russians and the Iranians are probably miscalculated in terms of the Western response. So if I look back to what the Iranians were saying at the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, some of the stuff they were saying was very worrying, I have to say. But some of the stuff that some senior clerics were saying was that this is the battle at the end of times. Putin has launched the final struggle. Now, you know, I was saying to some people, I said, this is extremely worrying rhetoric. But the other side of it was they thought Putin was going to win. I mean, they thought it was going to be a walkover, as I suspect Putin did as
4: well. And to be fair, so did the CIA. You know, they said that the Ukrainians wouldn't hold. It is funny, though, isn't it, that the decadent West, for all its decadence, does seem to outlast so many of these autocrats.
3: Well, I think the reason is, is because fundamentally, and although we've given ourselves a damn good beating, I have to say, in recent years, institutionally, the West is still stronger. This is the difference in terms of domestic state systems and so on and so forth. If you were to look at what's going on in Iran today, by the way, one would have to make the case that actually some of those Western values that people are so keen to deride are actually quite popular still internationally. I mean, you know, what the Iranians are calling for are basically the ideas of the Enlightenment, which has received such a good thumping in recent years. Actually, in Iran, (laughs) They're quite keen on them. It just goes to show us that these ideas are still very powerful. So in fact, the enduring
0: disorder has within it the technological capacities to spread some of these universal values like desires for free speech and individual rights. So these 2022 protests set off when the morality police killed Mahsa, who was not wearing her hijab properly. How do you see... American and global responses to these protests, sanctions, condemnation—have they been effective?
3: The sanctions issue is an interesting one because Iran is already so heavily sanctioned. That it's, it's very difficult to know how much, what else they can sanction, right? So, I mean, it's a little bit more—you know—one has to be a little bit more nuanced than that. You know, for instance, sanctioning the morality police is purely symbolic. Nobody in the morality police is about to get on a jet and go on holiday to Washington. That's a gesture. On the other hand, there are things that the West can do, which they are doing, I think, which are much more interesting. One is keeping attention focused on these and making sure people in Iran know that people are paying attention and are supportive. I think it's very important, actually. I think in our modern media, social media age, young Iranians basically throwing themselves in front of tremendous courage, much more courage than I could ever bring myself to do. I mean, going ahead against guns and so on and so forth being shot and beaten and other things, it's important for them to know that people are watching and that in some ways also the international community, and let's say the international community, although we know we're really talking about the West, is demanding that people are held accountable for their action. But there are also other very simple things, which I know I think the Canadians have demanded and some others, is that why on earth is Iran part of the Women's Rights Committee or something of the UN? I mean, this is an absurdity, right? And so they need to be off. Things like this are very important to convey to Iranians that there is a world watching out there, there is a world that supports. And I think, you know, in a more practical sense, what the West needs to be doing is to ensure that those channels of communication, be it through the internet, social media, whatever, are kept open as far as they possibly can. Because what the regime does, obviously, the first thing it will do is it shuts down all telecommunication of any sort.
0: You mentioned Canada wanting Iran removed from the UN's women's body. This begs another question. What is Iran's? involvement over the last years in any of these international bodies that have to do with human rights and women's issues say about the dysfunction of today's global institutions?
3: Well, I mean, this is one of the great paradoxes, obviously, of Iran, by the way, is that while it is a great disruptor, it also likes to use international institutions to its advantage. But of course, you know, Iran being on a women's right, I mean, what's it going to do? It's just going to block things, basically. It's just going to make sure its vote is felt in ways that I don't think are entirely constructive. I mean, it's not the only country, by the way, that's gone on some rather awkward committees, human rights committees or whatever. And maybe it's a sad reflection also on the way in which the UN works. But that's just the reality we deal with at the moment.
4: There certain themes that are reappearing here. And we're talking about global leadership, global governance. And we're talking about certain things like, you know, the US is a really important thing here, the enabling of disorder, right? Even accidentally, You know, first of all, you do something that creates chaos across the region, like, for example, Iraq. Secondly, you accidentally take out every enemy, pretty much, of Iran, Saddam, the Taliban, everything. But we're talking in the end, I think, a liberal democratic order, in some form or another, battling autocratic states. And in this sense, Ukraine and Iran are essentially almost kind of like two fronts of the same war, right? If you're thinking about
3: values. I actually entirely agree with that thesis. And I think it's important. And this is another thing, I mean, which I think when we talk about the global disorder, I think we should underline global, you know, not just disorder. Because far too often, we look at the world and see it in these regional compartmentalized elements, you know, the Middle East, the Near East, the Far East, you know, South Asia. But actually, what's very striking, I think, about this is that the Russia, Iran, Ukraine element, I mean, it's all part of one big problem. And I think it's, in some ways, good for Iranian opposition and protesters and others, that they are finally being seen as part of a wider problem and not just something that you can sort of squirrel away, oh, it's part of the Middle East, you know how wretched they are and all this sort of thing, and let's ignore them.
0: What are your takeaways in terms of four decades of watching Western policymakers fail to deter Iran? What lessons would you want to impart for people trying to deal with other conflicts in trying to make a more ordered world.
3: My central lesson, if you really want to know, is that they've got to take politics and they've got to take foreign policy seriously. And if you want to take politics and foreign policy seriously, you need the people to do it. And if you've got to get the people to do it, you need people with languages, you need people with cultural background, you need people who are in touch, and you need to develop a strategy. Western policy towards Iran has been one long exercise in crisis management, and it doesn't work. We've been trying to manage the disorder. We need to order the disorder. Wow.
0: We should have Ali as a guest more often. Right. He just orders the disorder, even without being prompted. (laughs) But more seriously, Ali's idea that Iran could be becoming a leader rather than a follower in the axis of autocratic states, it's pretty interesting. It's not what I would have thought two or three years ago, because we tend to imagine that Russia... That's the country that just screws up everything, and it's the one who is disordering the world. But if we imagine Russia becoming increasingly weakened by its foreign adventurism, Ali helped us see that the struggle for global leadership is between two very, very different visions of the world. And caught up in this struggle are the victim states like Yemen and Syria, which Iran has disordered knowingly. And then other states like Libya, which the whole international system has actively disordered as a result of this tug of war of global leadership. Alex, how do you see the struggle to set the global agenda playing out? Did you work on this as a diplomat? And what were the externalities of this struggle?
2: So I think one of the best examples I can give is working on and at the United Nations. I mean, the United Nations is supposed to be the body in charge of upholding international peace and security. And yet time and time again, it's actually unable to act effectively. And sometimes it makes a complete mockery of the values that the international community is supposed to be upholding. I mean, Ali, in his interview, talked about Iran being on the UN Women's Commission, which is a complete joke by itself, given how it treats women in Iran. But I used to work on the UN Human Rights Council and the UN Human Rights Commission. And the countries that were most desperate to get to serve on the UN Human Rights Council were the countries with the absolute worst human rights records, like Cuba or Libya or Iran, And they used their position on the UN Human Rights Council to try and block investigations into countries like Burma or Zimbabwe or what was going on in Syria. They were using the machinery to thwart any effective human rights work whatsoever. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's
0: obvious that the US, the UK and our European and Australian and Japanese Allies need to work together to try to forge international consensus on how to deal with problem sets like Libya or Iran. This used to be a controversial position, especially in the wake of the 9 11, where people were pushing back against W. Bush's overreach and America was stigmatized for the Iraq War. But now people have seen with the Ukraine conflict that when the stakes are high enough, the West can overcome its differences, we can show a united front. And the majority of our populaces are behind this kind of leadership. So now we know how to do global leadership. Biden has really been an amazing coordinator of the allies. You know, how do we share these missiles? How do we make the European states willing to deal with higher petrol and gas prices? That's all been done brilliantly. Let's just build on this American leadership working through our allies in a coalition in the wake of what should hopefully be a great victory from these Ukrainian counteroffensives.
2: The comment of the two interviews we heard today, I think the one that gives me the most hope was by Ali. And he says, there's still some juice left in the West. We still have these assets. We can still do it. We just need to find the confidence to do it. And Ukraine jolted us out of our complacency. There's still some juice left in us that brings us to the end of this week's episode with a little bit of juice in us
0: if you enjoyed ordering the disordered world please follow our disorder pod wherever you're listening you can also follow us at disorder show on the network formerly known as twitter and if you want to really dig deeper into this topic then follow the links in our show notes
2: and as we sign out i really want to thank our producer george mcdonough our executive producer neil fern goal hangers jack davenport and also our former program managers zina starbuck and guy Fiennes. this show wouldn't happen without them
4: next week i cannot think of a time in recent memory where you have a half dozen geographies with no connection to each other that
0: are simultaneously the origin of at least one million displaced people. We're gonna analyze how the global movement of economic and political migrants is contributing to our era of disorder. Until then, wishing you an orderly week. Goodbye.